This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. The countdown to the midterm elections right around the corner. So who has the edge? Is it the Republicans or the Democrats? Larry Sabato, the director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, joins us now. Larry, thanks for being with us. Delighted to be with you, Joe. All right. So we're in the home stretch here. We've been talking about the midterm elections for months now and and here we are coming down to the finish line how how do things look for republicans in the house jeff i think it looks very good for them not just to win a majority but probably multiples of the additional five seats they need they could win i guess as few as 15 or 20 they could win 25 30 none of that would surprise those of us who are watching these races closely and have noticed a drift to the republicans in the closing days of the campaign. What do you think is responsible for that shift in the closing days of the campaign? Well, first, inflation has not eased. It's continued at the same level, the same high level, highest in you know, since the 1980s. I think maybe some voters had hoped that there would be some uh, relief, and there hasn't been, at least so far. Uh, and inflation and the economy generally have take it over the campaign just the way normally uh, it does. It's often about politics. It's often the politics is often about pocketbook issues. This is another example of it. But also, uh, you know, Democrats had a period of time when it looked like they were going to avoid the curse of the usual midterm election, which is that the president's party ends up losing, if not big, then sizably. Uh, And that was when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and uh, Donald Trump uh, continued to get on the national stage day after day after day because he's even more unpopular than President Biden is. Well, I don't think the Trump factor has changed, uh, but uh, Roe v. Wade, while it was um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, while it was clearly an unhappy event for Democrats, that occurred in June. Now, it isn't that far away from June to November, at least in my book. 
Uh, but I've seen this so many times before. People will get upset and focused on a particular issue. And the more weeks that go by, the fewer people are motivated by it or enthusiastic to vote on account of it, especially young people. And they're the ones most affected by the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But, you know, what we're hearing about the early vote is that turnout has been pretty good. Doesn't the early vote favor Democrats? And could that change the the picture on election night? Uh, It could. Uh, We don't know for whom they voted. It's certainly true that Democrats have tended to vote early using in-person voting, early in-person voting or absentee voting. Of course, that was more true for 2020 because Donald Trump was telling Republicans to wait until Election Day because he suspected that the early vote was somehow corrupted, which was, of course, malarkey. Uh, But I think more and more we've seen that voters, including Republicans, have caught on to the convenience of early voting. So I don't expect quite as big a Democratic edge in the early vote. And the enthusiasm level, party to party, is very significant. You always look at that because midterm elections inevitably draw far fewer voters than a presidential race does. In 2018, half the voters voted in the midterm election, and that was a modern high. We'll be lucky to hit 50% again, though it's possible. Uh, but that is that's simply not on the same level as a 2020 presidential election. So, you know, essentially, the enthusiasm level for Republicans has gone up. It looked like Democrats were going to come close to matching that, but their enthusiasm level in the past few weeks has declined. So that's another reason why Republicans are favored in many of these close contests. All right, let's just assume that Republicans retake control of the House. Does that mean that Kevin McCarthy will be the next speaker, or do you expect a fight for control of the Republican Party in the House? Jeff, I think both. (laughs) I think McCarthy probably is going to be speaker, but uh, the Republicans in recent times have achieved the dubious distinction of being just as faction-ridden as the Democratic Party in the House and Senate. Uh, So uh, Kevin McCarthy will probably be speaker, very probably, unless Donald Trump suddenly comes out against him, then there would be a real contest. But I think uh, McCarthy has mended his fences to the extent that you could do that with Trump. Uh, But the Republican Party, um, depending on the actual margin of control, is not going to be especially unified, at least not after the first few months. Because the first few months are always easy. It's more about promises than reality. And it's as you get into the more controversial subjects that you're going to find the very conservative, some would say extreme freedom caucus, fighting with the more moderate conservative or mainstream conservative members of the Republican House. And certainly they'll be fighting with the Senate. Of course, it matters which party is in control of the Senate. But even if it's Republicans, I don't expect the Senate Republicans to get along famously with the House Republicans. If the Democrats are to hold uh, that edge in the Senate, they're going to have to win that race in Georgia. Raphael Warnock versus Herschel Walker. That's the race that everyone has been following because it looked like toward the end of this contest, Herschel Walker had fumbled the ball with these questions about whether he paid for an abortion. 
How do you think that one turns out? For a long time, I think most of us believed because of all the scandals swirling around Herschel Walker and the doubts about him anyway. We need to remember in the beginning, Mitch McConnell didn't want Herschel Walker to be the nominee because he didn't think he could win. Uh, but, uh, you know, politics is a funny business. Uh, we all recall Access Hollywood, that scandal for Donald Trump that occurred in October of 2016, and it led many people to write him off and said he couldn't possibly win after the obscene things he said about his relationships uh, with women. Well, we know what happened in 2016, and at least right now, as we approach the actual election day, it doesn't appear as though the two uh, charges lodged against Herschel Walker uh, for encouraging abortions and having them performed uh, earlier in his life and some other scandals that have arisen are, are affecting the vote very much. I would say, yes, it's deadlocked right now, but the person with momentum is Herschel Walker. There are even some Republicans privately claiming and showing numbers that suggest that Walker could win without a runoff. Now, I'm not there yet. It may be my Tuesday, but I'm not there yet. I think there will likely be a runoff. Uh, but uh, you you absolutely cannot rule out Walker. Uh, scandal doesn't work anymore. I think murder one would work. Uh, I think that could probably deter a candidate from winning, but I'm not sure much else could. All right. What about in Pennsylvania? Oz versus Fetterman. Fetterman seems to have lost some ground, but will he pull it out? If he pulls it out, it's going to be because of the Democratic candidate for governor, Josh Shapiro, is winning by a wide margin. The Republicans nominated a far-right candidate who has a very troubled past on social issues, and I think Shapiro is going to win handily. The key for Fetterman is establishing a, an unbreakable tie with Shapiro, and he needs Shapiro's help for that. They need the campaign and the remaining hours of the campaign as a team, as a ticket. That might be enough to pull Fetterman across. Uh, again, it's a deadlocked race, but the momentum has been with Oz. He's the one who's made up 15 percentage points since the summer. And a lot of that has to do with, with uh, the health consequences of John Fetterman's stroke uh, earlier in the summer. Uh, very regrettable. Everyone's sympathetic towards him. Uh, but uh, the mistake he made was having a debate. He didn't have to agree to a debate, but when he did, people saw uh, that he was uh, quite limited in some ways in verbal abilities. Yeah, we'll see how that one turns out and so many other races to watch on election night. Larry Sabato, the director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, thanks for your time. Enjoyed it as always, Jeff. Thank you. Joining us now is Dahlia Lithwick, author of the book Lady Justice and also senior editor at Slate. Dahlia, thanks for coming back on. It's always a treat to be with you. Thank you for having me. And it's a treat for us because you know how to make the Supreme Court sound easy, um, especially some of these cases, this affirmative action case. They heard arguments this past week. Uh, the consensus seemed to be that the Republican, uh, the Supreme Court justices chosen by Republicans will want to do away with affirmative action. 
How does it look to you? I think that was pretty clear. I think they, you know, they only need five votes to do away with affirmative action. I I actually think they will have six. Um, This was a pair of cases, one uh, involving University of North Carolina, which is a public school. And so that one came up as a constitutional question. And then Harvard, uh, which is a private school. So there's not a constitutional uh, issue there as much as there is a statutory issue under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And, you know, as you said, this was almost six hours. <laughs> it was really complicated and weedy. But I think I could tell probably easily 30 minutes into the first argument, which was the UNC case, um, that there were five and I think probably six votes to do away with four plus decades of affirmative action as something that is constitutionally permissible. So how could you tell? Is it the questions that they were asking? I mean, I think that there was a deep skepticism on the part of the court's conservatives. And this is a drum they've been beating in a whole bunch of other contexts that there can ever be permissible use of race for any reason. And a story which is, by the way, a pretty ahistoric story that they want to tell about the ways in which what the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act actually gave us was not remediation for, you know, decades of horrific uh, abuse uh, and racial discrimination and slavery, but some kind of free-floating guarantee that the country would be race-blind that race would never again factor into any decision-making and that we can all live in harmony because there's no such thing as race anymore. (laughs) Right. And you're laughing because it's kind of funny. And you, I mean, you and Katanji Brown Jackson, who keeps saying in response to this, but that's not actually true. If you look at the Reconstruction Amendments, if you look at the Civil Rights Act, it was clearly an attempt to use race to remediate racial harms. But there's this new idea in town that says that the only way, and this is paraphrasing Chief Justice John Roberts in a case from some years ago, the only way for us to get past race is to get past race. And so the idea here is that it is discriminatory in and of itself to use race in any way, shape or form, not just in college admissions, but we saw this um, in in a voting rights case earlier this term, and that the mere act of being conscious of race to try to remediate discrimination based on race is itself racism. And so if that sounds upside down-ish to you, it's because, as I said, it's not just ahistoric, but it absolutely abuses the precedents like Brown and Bakke and the other cases that the court cites. But I think that ship has sailed. I think there are six people prepared to vote for that proposition. And in so many of these cases, you have individuals pushing the court in directions like this. For example, who is this guy? Ed, is it Ed Bloom or Ed Blum? It's Ed Blum, and he is somebody who has made it his business uh, to challenge the idea that Uh, you can have race consciousness in uh, any remediation. And he's the guy who was the architect of the last effort. You may remember when the court um, looked at affirmative uh, action last time, that was a case that involved uh, a young woman named Abigail Fisher, 
who was challenging uh, race conscious admissions. And even though she lost uh, and the Supreme Court at the time said that you could continue to use race as a factor in college admissions. It's not a checkbox, it's not a quota, it's not you know three points on your admissions, but it is a holistic factor. And that's the last time this came to the court. And so Ed Blum looked around and said, if I can't bring this case on behalf of a white woman who felt that somebody else got her spot in university because she's white, I'm going to bring this case and the Harvard case is this expressly on behalf of Asian American applicants who now say, I'm not getting this slot at Harvard because um, I'm Asian American. And so it's an attempt to say, which was, we heard pretty graphically, I should add at oral argument, that the same way that Harvard in the 1920s had a quota for Jews and would only admit X number of Jews, that this is exactly the same as that, where it's a quota system that is limiting the number of Asian Americans that can get into Harvard. And so therefore it is race discrimination. So this has been a decades long project. It's not just affirmative action, it's in a whole bunch of different contexts, but it's kind of a lesson in how one person alone with a kind of vision of how he wants the constitution to look can be an absolute juggernaut, You know, just bring the case again and again and again, find a new plaintiff, find a new plaintiff until you get your way. And he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And so I'm wondering what you sort of mentioned Ketanji Brown Jackson, the new Supreme Court justice. Uh, what is what has been her response to some of these arguments? Well, this was an interesting set of cases. As I mentioned, there were two consolidated cases. That means that there were two cases that raised the same issues. And initially, they were going to be heard together. One was Harvard, one was UNC. It turned out that Justice Jackson used to serve on the, quote, board of overseers. That's a governing board at Harvard. And so she recused herself from the Harvard case. And so the cases were split up again so that she could um, sit in on the UNC case. And then she removed herself from the Harvard case. And so she only spoke in the UNC case and the other one, she wasn't on the bench. But it was really interesting because I think she did the same thing that we heard her do in a, in a case earlier this term that folks may remember that had to do with an Alabama racial gerrymander. And when she was confronted in that case, and again in this case, with attorneys saying, oh no, the command of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment, the command is in fact that we must be race neutral, that race counts for nothing, that if there's any use of race for any reason, that that in and of itself is race discrimination. And it's been Justice Jackson in both cases who comes back and says, let me read you the reports, the contemporaneous reports around the drafting of the 14th Amendment. Let me try to help you understand that this was um, the drafters and the Freedmen's Bureau and an entire historic machinery that was trying to make uh, formerly enslaved people whole after the atrocities of slavery. And so she's very much one to do two things, and I think they're important. One is to say, you can't pretend to be originalists, to be using the text in history that was known at the time and that was clearly attempting to do remediation based on race to say that the text in history means we're supposed to be 
race blind. That's just wrong. And I think that's one thing she's doing is using the tools of originalism that supposedly the court's conservative wing supports. And she's saying, if you support originalism, you can't be for this. And I think that's one thing she's doing. And the other thing that's almost more powerful is that this is the first Black woman justice. She is descended, as she says, from slaves on both sides, giving voice to this is what it means from where I sit to hear what you're saying. And so there's both a kind of doctrinal thing that she's doing, which is really important. It's saying, this is what originalism demands if you're true to that. But then there's this also very visceral thing of having her say, this is how I see it and this is what it means. And maybe the best example of that is there was an amazing moment at oral argument in the UNC case where she said, I don't understand how somebody who is the descendant of a UNC legacy, who is able to say, oh, you know, my great granddad and my great great granddad all went to this university. And that's why I get to go here because of my proud legacy as a white man. And the descendant of former slaves cannot say, I am the descendant of slaves. And I come to this school as somebody who's been barred by my family's quote unquote legacy from attending here. And that that latter thing is an improper consideration of race. And she went so far as to say, to bar that second essay uh, from being a factor in considering that applicant is itself race discrimination. And so I think what she's done in addition to just being a voice of uh, this is what it seems to be invisible to the majority of the court is really, really using the tools of this was the purpose of these Reconstruction Amendments. This was the purpose of the Civil Rights Act. And to pretend that the purpose was to lift the burden of race from whites and blacks equally is just utterly false historically. I think that argument that you pointed out that she made, it makes sense to me. Because I can't tell you how many times I've heard of people who have relatives who've gone to Yale or Princeton or Brown or Columbia, and then no matter what their grade point average is, they get in too because they are a legacy. That does sort of give you a leg up at a lot of these schools around the country. So what is the difference? I mean, it, it sounds to me like she has a very good point, and perhaps, I don't know, perhaps once the Supreme Court does what many expect it to do, which is strike down affirmative action, maybe Ed Blum will go after legacies. What do you think? I mean, there was a really interesting bunch of questions that came principally from Justice Neil Gorsuch on the court's conservative wing that asked a version of this question, you know, why is it that colleges allow squash players to come in? You know, why is it that colleges allow somebody whose dad donated an art, you know, museum to come in? And so I think that it's certainly something that is on everyone's minds. I think it goes to the sort of definitional problem of structural inequality, right? Which is that all of these universities forever existed on the largesse and the donations of very, very wealthy parents, often legacy parents, uh, who, uh, you know, by definition were white for a long time. Well, well, and, and, and that's another good point, okay? You know, if 
if they are seeking a colorblind society, well then why don't we also consider a a society where the amount of money you have doesn't matter, uh, especially as it relates to admissions to colleges and universities. It doesn't matter that you're so-and-so's son or daughter and they have billions of dollars that the university would love to have uh, in some form of contribution to the university. Um, There are so many, it's sort of a slippery slope because there are so many, you know, when you talk about advantages that people or prospective students get, there are any number of leg ups that people of color uh, don't get that others do get. That's right. And again, I think that's the nature of centuries of structural inequality. Justices Sotomayor and uh, Jackson were at pains to say, as a result of redlining, as a result of the ways we finance education, as a result of a million things that are baked in. And I know this sounds like, you know, critical race theory, but it is simply true that if you are a student, a black student at a poor high school, all of those leg ups that white students in wealthy districts get are not available to you. And that is still the case. And so you can't look at this sort of and hive off the reality of the way, you know, school districts are funded and the way testing happens. I mean, there's a million pieces of structural inequality that factor into this. And that's what makes it unfair. You're quite right. There's a second piece of this that is under your question that I think was really important and that didn't get reckoned with at the argument. And that is, you know, the students that apply to Harvard all get perfect test scores, right? I mean, the the students who are trying to get into these programs on the face of it are all superb. And Harvard can't admit everybody who gets perfect scores and everybody who is a great cello player and oboe player and squash player and all the rest of it. They have to make hard decisions. And so when you hear the justices, particularly on the conservative side, who keep talking about this as though it's a quote unquote zero sum game or that black and Latino students are taking spots away from white students. That's just factually wrong because they all are good enough on the merits to get in. There's nobody being admitted who doesn't deserve to be there. And then the other question becomes, and this goes back to, you know, Baki, the 1978 case that established that you could use affirmative action in college admissions, is that the goal here is exactly what you're saying, which is to foster diversity, to foster a society in which everybody gets an experience of being in a classroom with people who are different from them. And that's a value. I mean, the constitutional values of of diversity as a means to having a more, you know, uh, integrated and progressive society has been on the books for decades. And so I think one of the things that falls out of the argument and certainly fell out on Monday is the idea that it is in everyone's interest. It's in the military's interest. It's in the police force's interest. It is in the interest of corporate America that students not just go to school with other students who look and sound exactly like them. And the idea that the time for that is over because we've happily reached a moment in America where everybody is 
totally chill and tolerant about race. Exactly. You're laughing at, <laughs> exactly at the place you left at when we opened. But I know, it's I'm such sorry. a crazy notion. And yet the conservative justices in this case kept pressing both Harvard and UNC and their lawyers on like, when is this going to be over? When are we going to just be done with having to, you know, fix things on the basis of race? And Elena Kagan, I think so eloquently said, I thought we valued the idea of pluralism and tolerance and diversity. And so I think one of the things you're, you're pointing to is, you know, we're heading into an election where it is so abundantly clear that race and racism and structural inequality and race-based hatred and anger are not done. This is not over. And the idea that the court wants to say there's like an egg timer on this and we're done is just doubly painful in this moment. I didn't want to make this discussion about her, but I think it's interesting what you've pointed out about Katanji Brown Jackson. She's been on the court for, you know, it's a matter of weeks. And typically when I, I'm not comparing myself to her, of course, but when I join an organization, I try to listen first, just sit back, just take it all in. And I say that because she is staking out her territory in a way. She has, she has made her, her viewpoint known. Um, she's asking questions. Uh, what is your take on her first few weeks on the high court? She has been quite remarkable in that regard. I remember when Justice, this is how old I am. I remember when Justice Alito first came on the court and it took him by his own admission, almost a year to be comfortable speaking up at oral arguments. I mean, it's a roller derby in there. Everybody's cutting each other off. You have to muscle your way in. And a lot of justices have famously said exactly what you just said. You know, I'm going to listen for a while. I'm going to figure this out. And then I'll start asking questions. And on the first day on the bench, uh, Justice Jackson was absolutely off the hook in terms of participating, pressing lawyers. On the second day, as I mentioned, there was a big racial gerrymandering case, and she put herself squarely in the center of this idea of, we're going to talk about Texan history in the 14th Amendment. Good, let's go. Um, she's been very, very much um, willing to uh, uh, sort of hazard jumping in. And I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I just think she's a superb judge. We forget sometimes that she was uh, uh, on the bench for a long time before coming to the court and she knows what she's doing. She's not just trying to figure this out. But I also think she really feels that she has a voice. And even if it's going to be a voice in dissent, she has a role to play in lifting up some of these ideas, as I said, particularly in this context, if you're going to talk about originalism and say that you care what the text of the document says and what the intention of the framers was, then I think we need to do that right now. And so she has really, I think, become a clarion voice for that. And I can't help but notice, and you really pick this up on Monday in the arguments um, in the Harvard and UNC cases, that it's very, very arresting that all of the voices in dissent, all of the sort of minority voices now, are also the voices of women, whether it's Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, uh, or Justice Jackson. There's something really fascinating happening when those voices um, are all women. 
And I think Justice Jackson really acutely feels the twin obligations of speaking up on behalf of both people of color and women, in addition to, you know, speaking up on behalf of minorities who are invisible to the court. And it's not an accident, this was really profound, that the Solicitor General of the United States, uh, Elizabeth Prelogger, in her presentation uh, to the court, was at pains to say, we have a whole bunch of people arguing um, before the court this term, and all but two are men. And what does it signal to women lawyers that women lawyers are not arguing cases at the court? And that was at one level kind of gratuitous, right? It didn't have that much to do uh, with affirmative action. She was using it to make the point that we should be so much further along than we are and that people need to see other people succeeding in high office in order to imagine themselves there. And so I think both General Prelogger and uh, Justice Jackson are trying to do the work of saying, I'm going to lose. I know I'm going to look loose for a long time, but I want young women, particularly young women of color who are looking at me right now to say, oh, I could do that someday. And that's not affirmative action. That's simply laying down the tracks for what I think is a more diverse world. These are really interesting discussions about the makeup of the Supreme Court as it as it considers these cases about race, for example, according to the Washington Post, Hispanic lawyers have made uh, 2.3% of Supreme Court arguments since 2017. Black lawyers have made only 1%. Uh, and if you look at the makeup of Hispanics and blacks across this country right now, that number is minuscule minuscule, which shows a lack of diversity in the cases that are brought before the Supreme Court as well. That's right. And I think it's worth noting that almost every big ticket case that the court is going to hear this year, with few exceptions, actually implicates race and racism. And so then it's doubly staggering that uh, these are cases that the court is going to hear uh, largely presented by white men. Uh, and that's shocking. And it goes to, I think, this larger point, which is this diversity point, that when we talk about affirmative action, we get stuck in this zero-sum loop, right? Why is that kid getting my kid's spot um, at this place or that place? And I think that the idea behind diversity as a rationale as put forth in the Baki decision, and as you know, we should note, this has been reaffirmed in the Grutter case, it's been reaffirmed, as we noted, in the Fisher case. So this has been, this principle of we are all better served by a diverse society has been reaffirmed multiple times by the court. And I think it's the idea that we can be capacious enough to let other people succeed without feeling as though we're losing things. And so I completely agree. I think that it's not only important for the optics so that people can look at the court and look at the people who argue before the court and say, oh, this is legitimate because it's reflective of what the country looks like. That's a piece of it. But I also just think, and we know this, this is not disputed, that every one of us is a better person and makes better decisions when we are confronted with people who are different from us. And everyone who sat on the bench with Justice Thurgood Marshall, regardless of their politics, 
would later say, including Chief Justice Rehnquist, you know, would later say, I didn't know what I didn't know until Thurgood Marshall started to explain to me what it was like to litigate a case in Jim Crow and have to leave town with, you know, thugs chasing you, wanting to kill you. And we don't know what we don't know in this world if we only surround ourselves with people who are just like us. And so this value of diversity, and I should note, you know, Justice Thomas said again and again and again at oral arguments, I don't even know what diversity even means. I have no idea what that, that just sounds like it's just about feelings. It's not about feelings. I think it's about an aspiration for how we live in this country and rub along against, you know, with people who are different from us. And so the idea that this is being posited as pitting people against each other on the basis of race is actually antithetical to what the notion of the constitutional value of pluralism and tolerance and diversity really means. Yeah, it's a, it's golly, just, just having you sort of outline the arguments on both sides. It's really, it's really sort of eye opening. I think if the broader public was really paying close close attention to what's happening with this case in particular. I think there would be people out there who sort of roll their eyes or chuckle like I did because some of the statements that have been made, frankly, you just look at it and you think a colorblind society. I mean, have you not been living through the past four years or the past six years, or, you know, have you not talked to a person of color who even in this day and age is feeling more marginalized than ever uh, because of certain decisions that have been made by the government? Um, and so it, it leads me to wonder if at this time when polls show that the public sees the Supreme Court as this political body divided between Republicans and Democrats. If you look at the makeup of the court, even though diversity has been added, I could argue that it's not enough diversity. We don't have an Asian American on the court. We don't have a, uh, uh, you know, we, what, Asian male on the court, Asian female. I mean, there are other groups that are are not represented and viewpoints that are not represented on that court. And I know there's been some talk about adding to the court, but I wonder if, if this particular discussion, this debate that the court is having right now over affirmative action is perhaps an example of why there needs to be even more diversity of opinion on that court right now? I mean, I think probably you just answered your own question, which is diversity matters and also it's not enough, right? That we need a court that looks like America and also that we have, in fact, the most diverse court we've ever had in history. Uh, and it's not enough uh, to make, uh, you know, uh, to have a court that is racially and uh, uh, by gender and ethnicity uh, diverse because it's not diverse in other ways, right? This has been a longstanding joke. As long as everyone went to Harvard and Yale, um, there's a problem, right, of diversity. And it goes back to some of the kind of structural problems we discussed about Ivy League schools. So I think that, you know, there's one issue under your question, which is, look, we are never going to have a one-to-one -one correlation, whether there's nine justices or you expand it, 
you know, to, to 12 justices or 13 justices, you're never going to have a court that looks exactly like America because, you know, we haven't even talked about sexual orientation or disability. There's a million ways in which the court cannot have a one-to-one correlation between everyone that should be represented on the court and the court itself. So that I don't think is the goal. I do think that the goal is to have a court that, as I said, has the capacity to know what it doesn't know and have humility about the justice's own experiences. And maybe this is the way I would make the point I'm making. I was really struck in a case several years ago when Sonia Sotomayor wrote a dissent in a case that had to do with um, a young man who was being questioned at school without his parents' uh, notification or without a lawyer present. And Justice Alito writes the majority opinion where he's like, I don't know. I have no idea how that kid felt, whether he felt coerced or whether he felt like he wasn't free to leave. Not my job as a judge. And then Justice Sotomayor wrote this incredibly tender dissent where she tried to imagine what it would be like to be a teenage boy uh, being held and questioned by authorities and whether he would feel that he was free to get up and leave that room. And I remember being really struck at the time by the fact that she actually never was a teenage boy, nor was she the parent of a teenage boy. But she had this kind of infinite capacity for imagination, for walking in someone else's shoes. And so from that, I kind of took the proposition that you don't actually have to have been this minority or that minority or have had the experience, but you have to have the capacity to know that what you know is really limited in this world. And that for Justice Alito to say, I I don't even have to try to imagine what that kid felt like, whether he felt that he was free to go or not. That's not my problem. And compare it to Justice Sotomayor saying, I've never been in that situation, but here's what I think he was feeling. And that's the thing, even more so than strict one-to-one you know, diversity or uh, uh, the appearance of perfect diversity, is to have real solicitude for the idea that your experience is just your experience and that many millions of other people don't share it. And as I said about Thurgood Marshall, even the most conservative justices on the court who sat with him would later say, I had no idea. I had no idea what his life was like. And now I do. And it's changed the way I think about things. And so I guess I'm just saying I would caution against the idea that, and Justice uh, Ginsburg used to always say, there'll be enough women on the court when there's nine, right? That was her idea of diversity because it's time. And I would really caution against the idea that we would have a perfect court if it perfectly and flawlessly reflected every minority group. I would love to see that, but it's simply not possible. But I think we would have a much better, more generous, more humble court if we had nine members or expanded the court to more members who really had the capacity to say that just because something is new to me doesn't make it false or a lie. And I think that that's the direction that even though we have this really diverse court right now, I think we've moved away from that kind of generosity of imagination. You are amazing. (laughs) How you brilliantly explain the nuances of this court. Um, This is why I enjoy talking to you. And I got one more question for you. Hit me. Okay, so... As the Supreme Court considers affirmative action in university admissions, 
what's the next step in this case? What happens next? Well, actually, uh, the Friday of the week a court is argued, the justices sit down in a conference with no staff and no clerks present, and they take what's kind of a, a straw poll to get a sense of what the various justices are thinking coming out of arguments. And so procedurally, the next thing that happens will be just a kind of quickie vote where the justices say, this is where I'm inclining. And at that point, you're going to see, um, you know, the chief justice will assign the draft first opinion to somebody in the majority. And the most senior dissenting justice will uh, assign the um, draft opinion of the dissent to whoever they want to. And then you're going to have weeks and weeks and months and months, most likely, of drafts that are written and exchanged. The justices sign off. They might change their mind. Sometimes you can persuade somebody to flip. There's going to be, as you know, Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and John Roberts are the center of this court now. So there'll be efforts um, on both sides to kind of shade opinions to pick off a vote here and there. But I think that the short, long answer is that this case will come down most likely uh, at the end of the term in May or June. And uh, there will be a decision, my guess is, again, based on what I saw at argument, saying that you may not use race even as a factor uh, in college admissions, at which point I think every single university in the country is going to scramble to try to figure out a way to do something in college admissions to elicit a diverse student body. And, you know, there's some schools that that all, already are using, you know, these top 10 plans that take the, the top percentile of students uh, based on grades. There are conversations about using, as you suggested, um, income as a proxy for other factors. And so changing um, the procedures to, to do this in a way that will be constitutionally permissible. But I think we know based on states like California that have already done away with affirmative action in higher education, that there will be, regardless, there will be a precipitous drop in the number of uh, Black and Hispanic students that are admitted into schools and that none of those kind of proxy plans are going to do what affirmative action has done. And so I think in the short term, if the court overturns um, Baki and Gruder, I think you're going to see around the country a massive, massive decline in uh, Black and Latino students being admitted to schools. And I think that's going to be really, really disastrous, not just for those students, but I think if anything that I said about diversity in the classroom and the values of pluralism and tolerance uh, stand for anything, then I think it will hurt higher education broadly. Dahlia Lithwick, author of the book Lady Justice and a senior editor at Slate. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. Tanya Holland is here with us. Her new book is California Soul. Tanya, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. All right, let's talk about the book. And you were kind enough to autograph a copy for me. Now, what I didn't do is get into my cooking habits because my cooking habits are just atrocious, much worse than my eating habits. I'm not much of a chef, but... 
my kitchen looks better, I've noticed, with your book in it. Tell me some, <laughs> Tell me what went into this new book. Oh, it's a great prop, you know, and it's all you need. <laughs> um, That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it's a lot went into it, and it's a great read. I mean, you know, people are already commenting that this could be text, you know, required reading. Um, there's a lot of story of how California has influenced my cooking. And also the migration of African-Americans from the South, primarily from Texas and Louisiana to California, as well as African-American makers that are in business now and and some former ones. Like I was talking to um, a young person who grew up eating, you know, uh, um, famous Amos cookies and had no idea that Wally Amos was a black man. And so, you know, we talk about that. Um and so it's more than just recipes. It's also stories. And it's my third cookbook. And it really feels like the most personal. I always say, or I've been saying about it, it's the food I would cook if no one was looking. Um, it's fresh. It's seasonal. It's organized by seasons. Uh, something that I've uh, really um, valued about living in California is that, um, you know, you know when produce is in season because it just appears in the store you know, at some markets only at that time of year. So that's kind of the uh, the nutshell uh, synopsis of the cookbook. What do you think there, there are, as you know, a lot of dynamic, uh, successful chefs out there? Why do you think you stand out? Well, I think I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I, um, you know, I have an eclectic background and I think whenever, you know, you have a lot of different experience and you, that informs how you cook and the different techniques and ingredients that you bring to your dishes. Um, everybody's going to have their own unique combo. And, um, you know, mine is, is really rooted in my parents being from Virginia and Louisiana. And then also, you know, me studying foreign languages and traveling abroad and then working in uh, kitchens here with different cuisines. And so it's just all, um, you know, it just all is a collection of all my different experiences. And I'm really, really uh, particular about the restaurant environment. So when I had my restaurant for 14 years, I made sure that, you know, I sourced the best ingredients possible. The service was excellent. The room was really comfortable, and I just think that's really memorable to people when they know you're putting that kind of care in. Yeah, and you really, you really sort of came of age. Even though you've traveled all over the globe, you came of age in Oakland, California. What does the city of Oakland mean for you? Well, you know, when I arrived in Oakland, I know, you know, I started to learn more. Even though I had. My parents met there. I had a great aunt and uncle there and some cousins. When I was growing up, I just never, you know, thought about the significant or knew about the significance of the community being the end of the railroad line and where the porters, which were predominantly African American, um, settled and created this middle class neighborhood. And the Black Panthers, um, were there and there's just so much history and I really wanted 
to kind of create this spot where everybody felt welcome, no matter what background, but it really honored the cuisine and the history of the community. In fact, my barbecue place, which was called B-Side, sort of like Brown Sugar Kitchen was a hit. And so when we opened B-Side, I was like, this will be the (laughs) B-Side of the record. Um, We honored the Black Cowboys because um, there's so much history of Black Cowboys. So we named some drinks after these Black Cowboy movies and we played the black and white movies on screens in the restaurant. And, um, you know, it was just like so rich. There was so much to work with and it was well received. And, you know, that, of course, made me want to just do more and stay. What did you learn? You know, we talked about how you traveled overseas. What did you learn in Burgundy, France? Oh, lots of things. Um, You know, the discipline in the French kitchen is, you know, revered. And that's why so many people um, still, even in other countries, uphold that, those classic techniques and structure of running their kitchen with the brigade, um, the organization of the kitchen. Um, It is very patriarchal, but, you know, there's something to be said for the discipline that is required around cooking and the repetitiveness so once, if you do something, you know, 10, 20, 30 times in a row, you perfect it. And I really learned that. Also, the uh, Chateau in Burgundy, where the cooking school was, had, um, I think it was about two acres, the garden. So, it, you know, it was really farm to table. And we would go out and pick our herbs and our vegetables and then bring them in and cook them. And there's just nothing like, you know, being at the source and sourcing your food from, you know, your backyard, basically. Um, And then I learned more about the regional differences in French cuisine. So whether it's like the South or the West of France and how the differences were. And I, you know, I worked in Provence, I worked in the Alps. um, And just the, you know, the basic lesson of being a foreigner and how, um, how challenging that can be. And just made me more um, empathetic for, you know, people who come to this country and often start in the restaurant business and some of the challenges and obstacles they face. But overall, just like learning classical French cuisine was was really, um, it was wonderful. What are some of the challenges that you have faced? Um, well, I mean, a lot. <laughs> like I said, the uh, kitchens there and here are very patriarchal. Um, in France, though, you know, interestingly enough, if you work hard, that's all that mattered. Whereas in the States, I ran into more political challenges. So with um, sexism and racism and um, people withholding information and knowledge and, you know, not mentoring or uh, investing or, um, you know, respecting your authority and, or my authority and, um, you know, my expertise. So that's been, you know, just a challenge that I continue to face and I continue to be vocal about it. I have, you know, different platforms and organizations I belong to. And now that I'm an expert with a cook as a cookbook author and having had uh, cooking shows, um, you know, I'm able to just like move the needle half an inch at a time. (laughs) All right. And so you talk about some of the challenges that you faced. Have you, have you, 
faced any challenges in your view because you are a black woman in this field? Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't had a lot of peers. I don't have many peers in my generation in this field. You know, I'm in my 50s and I think, um, you know, you could ask the average person, like, name, you know, five other black women chef restaurateurs, you know, multimedia chefs um, who kind of have all the accolades I have. And you can't name them, but you could name dozens of men. And then they have these empires, you know, and... I think, you know, some of the the challenge has been the having the resources of the capital, like enough to really, really launch, not just, you know, um, enough to open the doors, but to like really, really, you know, stay ahead of the game. And then also as a leader, you know, I told people like, if you looked at the, the confirmation hearings of um, Judge Brown Jackson, I'm like, that's my life. You know, people always questioning my expertise even though the credentials are right in front of their face. Um, so it's, you know, it's really, sometimes it can be, um, you know, just like, um, I don't know. It just, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's difficult, but at the same time, I'm using this unique point of view to, you know, I'm trying to leverage it so that I can be impactful and pave the way for those who come after me. The one thing that's guaranteed is people need to eat <laughs> and there will always be some opportunities to feed people, which is another reason why I chose this field because I'm like, okay, people always need to eat. So I should always be able to have a job and, you know, in some capacity. <laughs> that's why you're smart and you're good at what you do. <laughs> really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and... I look forward to more California soul in my kitchen. Thank you, Jeff. I, I hope you enjoy the rest of the, the book and, you know, take a chance and cook up something for yourself. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. And don't forget that you can hear ACF on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.